And by the way, along those thoughts, um, sometime last week, I took the time on a on a evening and watched the movie The Nativity Story. Anyone remember that? Hey, how many of y'all have seen that before? Okay, all right, y'all need to do this. Okay, I, I'm sure it'll be on television somewhere. Maybe one of the Christian channels will show it. Although it was a major production um, for the theaters, um, it's worth going to to uh, Family Video and trying to rent it. It's a very that song. It just lines up with the movie so nicely. It really gives a clear picture of what it was like for Mary and what it was like for Joseph. And then, of course, as they came together and made that journey to Bethlehem, it really is a very good portrayal uh, with, with Scripture of the Nativity story. So you need to rent that, and you need to watch it. I, I think it really will make your Christmas even more beautiful and fruitful than it has been. So mark that down, the Nativity story. Watch for it on television if you have satellite or cable, or try to rent it. And I probably, by the way, you can go to Walmart in that $5 bin. You'll probably find it in there, too. So it's worth, it's worth doing. It's well, well done. Well, tonight we want to take a moment and look at uh, Luke chapter 15, verse number 25. And we want to take a look now at the second part of this story. And for the way of introduction, I just kind of want to recap a couple of things we talked about this morning that I think were very important. But let me just say this. Again, I alluded to it very slightly because I didn't want to give the sermon away for tonight. But we understand that the younger brother physically went away from the father. Um, again, I, I used that tagline this morning on purpose, trying to get it stick into your head. Life without dad. Life without dad. I said over and over again, and that was just a way of saying life without God. Life without father. We start entertaining that thought in our heads, and before long, we start imagining, well, you know, that would be a good life if I went away, if, if God was not a part of my life. And so... Um, we take that physical, he took that physical journey. And a lot of people have made that physical journey. Um, I was thinking about, you know, how many people have we seen receive Christ? How many people have we seen that were very active in church? And those of you who have been here for as long as I have and longer, you go back and you'll think, well, you know, that person used to be there and that person used to be there and that person used to and that person used to. And there's a lot of people who literally walked away from God for whatever reason. And, and sometimes it wasn't a, a, even a grand-scale production to do so. It just sort of happened. And so, so there, is the, uh, there is the possibility of that physically walking away from God, and it can happen to the very best of people. So keep that thought in mind. But here's what I want you to know tonight, and this is important, because, because I think in churches across America, the individual we're going to talk about tonight is sitting in churches across America. And the idea is this that the far country does not have to be physical, it can be in the heart. The far country does not only have to be physical, it can be in the heart. And we're going to see that tonight. And in fact, one of the commentaries I studied you know, made that direct statement that, that the far country was for this son in his heart as well as it was physically for the younger son. And here's the deal. Can I be very candid with you? Churches across America have people sitting who have made that decision to, to say no to God in areas of their lives or their whole life, and yet because it's the thing to do, they still fill the pews of churches in America. It's a common thing. And I'm going to say it one more time, and we'll talk about it in just a moment, because I want you to get it. It's possible to have partial, partial 
um, life without dad in our lives. And again, I want you right now to pause and think while I'm talking. Just think about things in your life, areas in your life where you've said, you know what? I believe in God. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. But, but you know and I know and God knows that there are areas in your life where you block God off. You said there's going to be life without God. It may be someone you need to forgive. It may be a place of service that God's called you to. And you just said, no. It may be financial. It may be time. It may be talent. It may be your family. It could be your marriage. And you've taken, you've blocked off those areas and you said, no, I like life without dad. I want my life in those particular areas to be controlled by me and not by God. And that's what we began with this morning, that thought, that concept in Psalm 14. You don't need to turn there. Let me just read it to you. The fool or the foolish man has said in his heart, there is no God. And I want, to, want you to get this. Remember those words, there is, are probably in italics. And you have a King James or a new King James. They're in italics there, meaning they're not in the original Hebrew language. All right? It simply says, no God. And for the atheist, for the true atheist, which there are not very many, by the way, for the true atheist, that person says God does not exist. No God. But then again, without twisting scripture and without taking it out of context, we also can bring it down to that realm of practical atheism where we say we believe in God, but in all areas or some areas, all areas or some areas, we live as if God does not exist. Let me throw something out to you. You don't know how many funerals I do when... The person has made some sort of commitment when they were 10, 12, 15, 18, 20, 23, and somehow they either A, traveled to a far country and stopped serving God, or perhaps the commitment wasn't real. I don't know. But, but you don't understand how many people that I stand before congregations and say when they were younger, they made that commitment. And we claim to that hope of grace for them. You know, wouldn't it be amazing if that was a far minority instead of a majority? Wouldn't it be? And that begins with, again, believing and acting as if we believe in God in all areas of our life. That we don't become practical atheists, all right? Nor do we become full-blown atheists. We become true Christ, authentic Christ followers. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Okay, it's huge, guys. It's huge. And again, I see you're not going to let me go because I'm afraid you didn't get it. Okay? That is why, by the way, that is why there are so many lost people in the world who need to hear the gospel and it's not being funded, it's not being acted upon because there are areas where we're practical atheists. Okay? It's a foolish thing to do that, the Bible says. And then in Matthew 7, I want to go over that scripture just real quick. Everyone who hears these sayings, Everyone who goes to church every Sunday and hears at least one message, maybe two, and then if you're Wednesday nighter, you hit three messages a week, okay? Everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, in other words, who's walked, who walks into the building one way and walks out the building the exact same week after week after week after week, will be like a foolish man. There's our tie-in. There's our word. The fool has said, and the, I will liken him to a foolish man who built his house on the sand, a bad foundation. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So 
for the practical atheist in the room, uh, again, in the room this morning, and for the practical atheist, uh, partial practical atheist who say, you know, no, no dad, no dad, no dad, no dad, in certain areas of our life, understand that there might well be a fall in your life. And when the fall occurs, it will be a great fall. The greater the areas of practical atheism in our life, the greater the fall when it occurs. Just mark it down, take it to the bank. So, if your pastor is at least somewhat accurate tonight, and that there are practical atheists in our congregations across America, okay, what, what does God's word have to say to them and to us? And to us. What does the word of God have to say? Well, let's find out. Luke chapter 15 and verse number 25. Keep it in mind that the, the uh, far country does not have to be a physical location. It can be a place in the heart. Now, the Bible says, Jesus says, His older son was in the field, and then as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So the older field, remember there were two sons. Both of them, by the way, don't forget, both of them received their inheritance. One received a third, the, other, the oldest received the two-thirds. So now the older son was in the field. Now he was doing what the older son should have been doing. I want you to get that. He was doing, he was working in the field. Even though he received the inheritance, his father was still in charge because he had not died yet. And he was doing what would be considered a reasonable service by working in the field. That doesn't mean he was a slave. It doesn't mean that he was even a, like a bond servant. He was managing and working in the field. And then the Bible says that he came near and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. I'm not sure how you heard, hear dancing unless it's woo, 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 you know, things like that. I, I don't know exactly how that happens. But here's the deal. It seems from the context that this was unusual for him and maybe uncomfortable. He was not used for music to be in the house, nor was he comfortable with music in the house. And I'll tell you why. Well, let me let the, let the scripture tell you why in just a moment. And then I thought about this. Besides the fact we're telling a story about that Jesus wrote, told this parable and the, and the Father is God, beyond that, you can imagine that this may have been a very somber household. Imagine one of your children walking away when your hope of seeing him virtually is none. So from the physical aspect of losing a child, and some of you know this, from the physical aspect of losing a child, you can imagine it may well have been a somber household. Regardless, okay, the music and dancing that he heard was unusual for him, and let me say again, made him feel uncomfortable because he simply wasn't used to celebration for whatever reason. Verse 26. So he called one of the servants and said, what do these things mean? Now that simply is what it, I mean, it's clear. It says, hey, what is going on? Now keep in mind, where's he been? He's in the field and what's going on? A party. In the field working and sweating. He gets, they didn't say, we'll wait till Joe, the older brother, gets home. They started the celebration immediately after the father says, you know, get the robe, get the ring, get the sandals, kill the calf, we're going to have a party. So he shows up, and there's a party, and it appears to him he wasn't invited. Are you, are you getting the setup? 
okay? Because you're going to see all this kind of spill out in just a moment. So, the Bible says in verse 27, the servant said, He said to him, the servant said to the older brother, Your brother has come. Now, normally, that would be cause for celebration. But because of what's in this man's heart, this brother's heart, it is not cause for celebration. It's cause for anything but celebration. So your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, the father has received the younger son safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. Now, do you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about Elijah when we are talking about depression, and we said how in the Hebrew, uh, in the English it says... Um, Elijah went to a cave, but in the Hebrew, it's a definitive article, and it talks about the cave. And we said it's very possible that was the cleft of the rock that God put Moses in while his glory passed by. Well, it appears this is not just any fatted calf. This is the calf. It's apparently a calf that was being prepared for a celebration, perhaps, perhaps, of which somehow the, the older brother was involved. I don't know what that means. I can't give you the context more than that. But when it says the fatted calf, somehow, at least in that, in that older brother's brain, he sees that calf, he sees it getting fatter, and he's in the impression it's his. It's his. Are you got that? Okay, look at verse 28. He was angry. When he found out the, the prodigal brother... Had, who had gone and done all the things he had done, had come home, and that instead of being punished, there was a party in his honor, this, what had been dwelling inside, just vomits out. It just pours out. He's, he's jealous. He's bitter. He's resentful. He is filled with hatred. Now, if you wanted proof that you can be in a far country and not leave the father's house, this is it. If you want to have proof that you can be in a far country and still go to church three times a week, this is it. Because I've been doing this for 32 years, and I've been alive for 62 years, and I can tell you multiple examples of people who would go to church every week, but their life was filled with jealousy, bitterness, resentfulness, and sometimes even hatred. You can be all of those things and sit in a pew like we do every week and be that thing. You can be in a far country being consumed and never leave the house of God. He was angry and would not go in. Now, it's interesting. What is the father going to do? What is dad going to do? Well, he comes out. The father came out and pleaded with him. Now, I want you to get this. In a way, the father did, Tim, the father did more for the older brother than he did for the younger brother. Okay, I'll give me an example. When, when the younger brother was, you know, the father would go look every, well, we don't know how often, but the father would look for the younger brother to see. And when he saw him, he ran to him. But we see here also, we see the father leaving the party. The host leaves the party and goes out and pleads, begs the brother. Now, as much as, as, much as the father extended grace to the younger 
son. He's extending that love and grace to his older son. He could have said, let him stay out there. It's about time he acts like an adult. You know, put on your big boy pants and come on inside. But aren't you glad God's not that way? It's amazing this grace and love that our God exhibits. And believe me, look me in the eye. He does this for all of us all the time. That's why I'm telling you, I call them love notes. When you just know that God just just chose that moment to smile upon you. But if we could learn to recognize his love and his grace in small ways that he does every single day, it would change our attitudes toward God. See, the problem was, the, and you're going to see it in just a moment, the problem is the older, bro, the older brother never saw that. See what I'm saying? For whatever reason, the younger brother wanted to get out life without dad, and the older brother had encased himself in, so he blocked God out. He blocked the father out. He blocked dad out, and his life really was no different. As much as the young brother was miserable a thousand miles away, so the older brother was miserable and lived in the same house with the father. Pops in my brain instantly. Roy and Edith. How many times have I told you the story? Roy went to one church, evangelical church. Edith went to another church, evangelical church. They were married 49 years, and they hated each other's guts. They would not speak, and when they did, it was hurtful and resentful. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Just nuts. Just nuts. But in both cases, they both were in a far country, and they both needed the Father's love and grace, and both received the Father's love and grace. So he goes out and pleads with his older son. Look at verse 29. It's almost amazing what comes out. Now, you've got, to, you've got to get this. This is the guy. I'm trying to bring up our, our daytime terminology. So this is the guy who would attend church three times a week. He probably would write a tithe check. Tim probably could be a deacon. You know, number one qualification for, for being a deacon is you've got to go to church a lot. You know, you go to church a lot. Yeah, okay, you're deacon material. You know, well, that's what it seems like sometimes, you know. So, so he would have been all these different things. And watch, just watch what spills out of this guy who, who comes every week. Here's what he says. So he answered, talking to the father. And by the way, don't you know the, the older brother would go, and, and you ingrate, you, you disrespected dad. Wouldn't he say that? Watch as the older brother disrespects dad. So he answered and said to the father, These many years I have been serving you. So part of his complaint is that I've been serving you for many years. Beware when serving God becomes duty. Beware when serving God becomes an obligation. You will find yourself filling a pew every week and being bitter about the fact that you're filling a pew or teaching or singing or doing choir practice or whatever else it is. 
Serving God should not be an obligation or duty. It should be a pleasure and an act of love. You need to write that down. I'll never forget. I was thinking about it when I was getting ready to come to church. Back when I was a young deacon in Germany. I, I've told the story about three times. So you probably don't remember it. But, but you know, we, we kind of, it's kind of a deal. You know, the pastor kind of said, well, you know, if you're going to be deacon, you probably all come on visitation, you know. So, you know me, I'm a rule keeper, you know. The guy says, if you're going to be a deacon, you go on visitation. So, you know, so guess who? I, me and Judy showed up for visitation. Well, about the third or fourth time, maybe the fifth time, maybe the seventh time, maybe the second year, I reached a point where I looked over at Judy. We were driving our little blue Capri in Germany, and I said to her, why is it that we're the only ones out? Why am I serving God and no one else is? I was getting no brownie points with God. There was no blessing. It was duty and obligation. Whether you're a teacher, whether you're a deacon, whether you're a worship leader, or whether you're the pastor, or whether you're an usher, whatever you do, do all for the glory of the Lord and do it with joy and gladness in your heart. And if you are not, you've got to find out why. And can I go just a step further and get in some more trouble? Those of you who sign the tithe check in your family, if you're not signing that tithe check with a smile on your face, you've got to find out why. If you're on the special music schedule and your time's coming up and it's oh no and not praise God, you've got to find out why. Because the attitude of these years I have served you, if it's become a burden, it's an indication that you've got one step in or perhaps two steps in the far country. I'm trying to save you some grief. You know why? Guess who's been there? I already confessed one story to you. I've got a lot more. <laughs> I just won't share them with you. Below these years, I have been serving you. Number two. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. I've never transgressed. Now, first off, that's doubtful. And I won't call the guy a liar, but, but the bottom line is he probably messed up somewhere. I don't know what dad's rules were, but I know this. If, if, the, if dad represents God, and it does in this story, and Jesus says, love one another, he ain't. He's not. But here's the deal. Since when is obeying God a burden? So can we do it all over again? Can I, can I look you in the eye and tell you tonight that if you're sitting there and it's, it's, it's a burden for you to obey God, you've got to find out why. Because that's not normal. I don't, care what, I don't care what you've come to believe. I don't care what you've observed in church. I don't care what some pastor told you. If you're sitting there going, man, I just don't want to obey God, that's a problem. You've got to find out what's going on. That will never be the new norm. It will always be abnormal. So you've got to find out why. I've never transgressed your law at any time. I say, since when is that a... A burden. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. See, I'm hoping somewhere right now in this, in this small group tonight, someone's going, oh, man, I, I, I may have a foot in the door. Dwayne, how did you know? 
I'm hoping it's a wake-up call for us to really examine our lives about are we that older brother? All right, and then he goes this, he says, Yet you never gave me a young goat that I, may, that I might make merry with my friends. You never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. Now, first off, let me do the preacher thing, which, by the way, I believe with all my heart. The fact that he was a son of that father was more than enough. And let me bring it home to where you know where I want to go with it. Listen. If God never gives you anything but His grace and salvation, it's enough. We've got to get over this whining thing. The king of the whiners say it's time to get over the whining. If God has given us salvation, eternal life with Him, if we receive God's amazing grace through His Son, Jesus Christ, it's enough. It's enough. So with that said, His complaint is legitimate. The truth is, apparently, that the father had never given him even a goat. Now, we got to keep in mind something. Everything the father has is his. He, the father says that. If he wanted a fat calf, all he had to do is look at servant and say, fattening up, we're having a party. But the truth is, the father had never, I guess, taken the initiative and killed a fatted calf for his son. But here's the deal. Even if this is true, reasonableness tells us this. Love trumps all. Even if the older son had a legitimate argument, Father, you never even killed a goat for me. Regardless of that, that which was dead is now alive. We'll talk about that later. It's time to party. Uh, that's a good place for an amen. See, you know, when you, when you guys think you have this argument with God, that's fine, but it's time to party when a sinner comes home. You know, it's that old back of the line thing again we talked about not too long ago. We got to learn. If you ever wanted to find Jesus in the New Testament, look at the back of the line. It's where he was. The one guy who could claim to be the most important person in the room never did. Never did. Never did. You know, God's not always fair. You know, Jesus told that story about the worker who started in the morning, 9 o'clock, noon, 3 o'clock, and they all got paid the same thing. And the, the workers could say, that's not fair. Let me ask you a question. Was the cross fair? Was it really fair to Jesus that he died for the sins of the world and people didn't even care? No, see, love trumps all. Love trumps all. We're amongst friends. Love trumps when you don't like the music. Love trumps when you think the sermon is too long or too short or too loud or has the wrong translation. Love trumps everything. I'll tell you something now, and I'll tell you at the end of the message because it's on a list I got, but... The most important thing, the church exists not to coddle saints, but to save the lost. It's just what we are. Well, it's what we're supposed to be. And then he goes on. Then he really just, 
And as soon as this son of yours, he, you can just sense the anger. He couldn't even say his brother's name. He couldn't even claim him as brother. As soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, yet killed the fatted calf. I said this too a couple weeks ago. He wanted his pound of flesh. He wanted the brother to pay and pay big. Am I right? Guess what? He did. I don't know how long he was in the far country. I don't know how long he fed pigs. I don't know how long he longed to eat the pig food. I don't know how long he knocked on a door and said, Hey, man, I'm hungry. Can you feed me? And no one gave him anything. The far country made sure the pound of flesh was paid. But the brother couldn't see that. The brother couldn't even see his own situation, and he couldn't see. I mean, when I, if you, if you this morning, if you're familiar with this, this Bo Birdall, you know, when you saw him in that picture I showed this morning, and when you saw him coming out from the Taliban, and again, I want you to understand something. He is most likely guilty of treason and desertion and all those things. But if you saw the picture of that man who came out from 2009 to, to uh, 2014, you saw a broken, defeated, emancipated man. That's what you saw. That's what you saw. He may have been free, but he was broken. So the pound of flesh had been paid. But he goes, I want my pound of flesh. And already been given. So what's the father going to say? He said, verse 31, he said to him, son, you are always with me. Now you need to underline, so many times I've, I've taught this and glossed right over that. He's basically saying to the older brother, isn't being with me enough? Isn't being with me enough? Yeah, yeah, he got his inheritance and he went and blew it. You've got yours, by the way, but, but he blew it. And he's lived on, you know, with harlots and righteous living, all of that. But, but I've been with you. Isn't that enough? It goes back to what I said earlier. Is God enough? Is Jesus enough? Should be. Should be. You are always with me. And here's what I told you. All that I have is yours. You see this? It's yours. Now, it was right, verse 32, that we should make merry and be glad. It was right. He could have said, well, okay, son, you're right. Um, I tell you what, let's schedule a party next Tuesday for you. You know, I hate political correctness. And I watch how people bow to pressure. The father didn't bow. He said, look, it was right. It's just right that we should make Mary and be glad. I'm sorry you're upset, but what we're doing is right because your brother was dead and he's alive and was lost and is found. And son, that trumps everything. And when the church in America begins to understand, I'm sorry, I'm sorry you don't like this. I'm sorry you don't like this. I'm sorry you don't like that. I'm sorry you don't like that. 
When the church understands, yeah, but the most important thing is they're dead and they need a spiritual resurrection. They're lost and they need to be found. They're in darkness and we're the light. That's right. The problem is so often we have it. Once we start looking in, I've told you so many times, once we start looking in, it's such a dangerous thing. Churches get in trouble every stinking time when they start looking in. When it's me and my, me and my, churches split, the offerings fall, and folks aren't happy. If we can keep being a serving church, a loving church, a giving church, a sending church, a being church, being the church that God wants us to be, we'll keep experiencing the best life ever. Not still a line from Joel. So, from, a, from the commentary, here's a combined list of ap- principles and applications. So these are not mine. One, God and his people should pay attention to sinners, seeking to find the lost and bringing them to repentance. We must follow Jesus' example and minister to sinners instead of spending your whole life with the righteous. The church has a tendency to circle the wagons and ignore the world. We've got to quit circling the wagons and keep reaching out to a lost world. Two, show God's patient love when family members and friends desert for a while and return. And read that again. Show God's patient love when family members and friends desert for a while and return. Never forget, heaven is populated with the lost who were found and the sinners who repented. I told someone this morning, every week, our church is filled, even this morning, praise God, 335 for Thanksgiving weekend, that's good. But every week we're filled with over 300 people and we're all broken. And some have found God and Christ, and Christ has found them actually, and they've been restored and some need to be restored. But we got to always remember heaven is populated with those who are lost and have been found and sinners who have repented. Do not give up on people when they turn away from family and God. A repentant sinner floods heaven with joy. God, well, we know from Luke chapter 15, verse 7 and verse 10, heaven celebrates when a sinner comes home. We should too. We should do. Four, the church's task is to find the lost and not to protect or coddle the saved. Share God's joy when sinners repent. The church must join heaven in rejoicing over the lost when they are found. There's a time for a party at church and it's when sinners come home. And I believe that's either for the first time or when we've gone to a far country and there's a return, a repentance back into the family of God. Five, share God's joy. Oops, where I did that one. Six, be careful. Be careful not to be jealous or selfish. Unforgiving, selfish spirits show a person to be a sinner even if he does not think so. In other words, you might be here tonight going, I'm not in any far country preacher. And yet you're... Unforgiving, selfish spirit might show that you are. 
Your GPS may tell you you're not lost, but if you are, you are. You know, I've learned something. My best critic's my wife. According to her, I never preach a bad message. I know that ain't so. And if I go home and she says, Dwayne, that was a fine message, and it wasn't, it don't make it a fine message. If our actions and our attitudes are dictating we're in a far country, regardless of what our closest friends may say, our heart will trump that. And we need to come home. Would you bow your heads right there with me, please? course the teams I tell you let's do that little different thing Dave how about you sing for us tonight and of course the altar is open but let's end this day the way we ought to let's end this day with a close examination of our lives now I know on a Sunday night there's a good chance that probably there's not a a full-blown prodigal in a distant country there might be but most of us have areas we need to surrender Most of us have areas we need to surrender. So let's end this day like we should. Here we are on the very beginning of our Christmas season when God demonstrated his greatest love for us, that God became man and was born in the form of a baby. So let's begin our series. Uh, next, The sermon next week is called A Christmas Journey, and the series is called A Song of Christmas. And so let's begin tonight by being honest and examining. It's okay. It's okay. No one in this room is perfect. Now, if I can pray with you, I'd be glad to do that, but just spend some time. You don't need to stand. Just spend some time talking with the Father. And you may say, Father, you know I'm the younger one. I walked away. I want to come home. You may be the older brother, and you know in your heart Either all of it or some of it is not surrendered. You may be like that older brother. You're angry. You're you're hosting. Either you've been personally offended. Either you've been offended by the actions of others. And you just need right now to say, God, this anger is wrong. This bitterness is wrong. This jealousy is wrong. This selfishness is wrong. This hatred is wrong. And I need right now for you to bring me home in that area. Holy Spirit, help me to not be jealous. Help me not to be resentful. Help me not to be bitter. Help me not to be filled with hatred. And you know what you'll find? Just like you find the Father's arms open wide, you're going to find the exact help you need because that's just the kind of God that he is.